But actually, the commissioner who moves into that role has to look at both sides of the work of the office. And I think that FOI will be more of a challenge than we recognise. This is The Podcast, your privacy and data podcast with me, Anthony Brown, interviewing leaders from across the industry to provide you with news, views, insight and opinion. Hello there, I'm Anthony Brown and a very warm welcome back to season two of the Privacy and Data Talks podcast. I must say it's great to be back and today I've got a bit of a, a special episode to kick things off as we've got a very special guest for episode one. So I, I'm no doubt many of you in the privacy community will be well aware of Rosemary Jay. She's a name familiar to, to anyone who's been around, um, I guess, in this uh, community for the last few years. In fact, Rosemary has been recognised as one of the leading privacy and data protection lawyers in the UK for over 30 years. She's now a senior consultant attorney at leading international law firm Hunt and Andrews Kurth, where she advises on high-level privacy, data protection and confidentiality issues. And it's got to be said, Rosemary's had an amazing career that dates back to the late 1980s when she was head of legal at the Data Protection Registrar, which will be more commonly known to all of us now as the ICO or the Information Commissioner's Office. Subsequently, Rosemary spent over 20 years as a partner in leading international law firms. And well, I must say it's a privilege to have you on, Rosemary. How are you and how are things going in this third lockdown? Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Anthony. And I'm looking forward to chatting to you and for that glowing introduction, which I'm not sure that I deserve, <laughs> but uh, things are going absolutely fine. I'm due to have my first vaccine tomorrow. Oh, wow. And, um, I'm, I'm always busy. I still do some consultancy work with the firm, but I also have an allotment and a garden. So plenty, plenty to do. Well, I'm sure you'll have had to have, well, either had extremely good waterproofs or be very brave to have um, gone into the garden or the allotment over the last couple of weeks, because well, there'll be listeners outside the UK. But for anyone listening, as you probably guessed, it's um, been a pretty uh, grim uh, sort of end of January and February uh, weather-wise here for us. But I'm glad to hear you've got your, your jab tomorrow, uh, Rosemary. That's excellent. We're making good progress, aren't we? So we're all keeping our fingers crossed uh, that we're uh, yeah coming towards in the final furlong. So I think the first question for you is probably quite an obvious one, really, for anyone who's been in and around the privacy community for, for such a period of time. You were involved in privacy and data protection in its many years ago, um, long before it became fashionable as it is now and so you know it begs the question what, what let's throw us back to the sort of late 80s why did you get involved in privacy and data protection for the same reason that lots of women take jobs so I was working in local government and I live in a village which is just 10 minutes away from Wilmslow where the ICO's headquarters still are and I was working in local government and this job came up in Wilmslow 10 minutes, five minutes from home, you get to the supermarket during your lunch hour. And we had a 
our eldest was a toddler at that stage. So I phoned up on data protection. And by the time I got to that interview, Anthony, <laughs> I, I was committed to the value <laughs> of privacy. And uh, what my surprise, they, um, the, you know, they gave me the job. And uh, it was a fantastic opportunity, a fantastic office to join. It was a very, very small group. When uh, I was there, they had the first international conference of of privacy regulators and commissioners and I think there were 20 people attending wow yeah it was it was very different but it was a fantastic opportunity for me and such an interesting area to have worked in ever since absolutely blimey well I, I love your candidness around that because um, I'm sure many people would have thought yeah you know I was as soon as I'd finished my O-levels or I just had this draw to privacy and data protection, um, but it, it sounds like it was more of a sort of practical reasoning around the time. So so you were you were a lawyer, you'd qualified as a lawyer already and you were working in local government as a lawyer and then and then, yeah, so I guess, you know, still in the sort of public servant sort of arena it was um it was well you were a shoo-in weren't you just down the road it was absolutely perfect <laughs> so so there was only about 20 people working there at that time did you say uh, no there were i was talking about the first data protection sort of commission oh sorry the, the conference yeah right uh, okay yeah that was very small but there were only it was only a small office yeah i suppose i could go back and sort of count but we did have a registration. You used to have to register. Now, this was the early days of registration. So actually, it had it used to have quite a big registration function. And that was kind of the biggest block of activity. But the block of people who worked on policy issues was actually quite a small number. And I was the only lawyer for the first couple of years until we recruited. We started to recruit a legal team as the work developed. Right. So, gosh, I, I can only imagine the how different the sort of issues the ICO are dealing with in present day compared to the sort of stuff, you know, you would have been dealing with there. I, I guess the fundamental elements of the privacy and and uh, what you're trying to achieve is very similar, but obviously with the techn technological explosion and that's really sort of changed how things are done and looked at. Um, oh. Well, <laughs> the, the reason I, I yes, Anthony can see me because we're 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 faced we're on a Zoom. Yes. But nobody else can. But what I've just picked up here is actually a piece of guidance. It's guidance note 19 from 888. So that was August 1988. It's called Fair Obtaining Notification. And it's all about obtaining information fairly and giving the first guidance really that that I think came out from a regulator in um, in Europe in detail around this issue. And it reads very, very, you know, it could be contemporary almost, you know, mm. uh, in order to obtain information fairly, it can be expected the person from whom the information is obtained will need to be notified as to certain matters. <laughs> but in its day, it was radical. Um, yeah. And actually, this is actually an original, no one can see it, but I have promised to give it to, uh, to, to, to a friend because it's... Uh, <laughs> He's going to cherish it, apparently. Keep it in the <laughs> Wouldn't it be amazing if you had a time machine, you could go back to some of those early conferences and then 
a snapshot it compared to some of these enormous, you know, the IAPP conferences, you know, you're lucky sometimes you can get a ticket or certainly access into some of the rooms where certain some of the certain talks and the speakers are in, you know, it's, um, it's crazy, really. And I mean, you've, you've basically been on that, that journey, haven't you, for many years, you've seen it all sort of grow up around you. And I mean, I know you, you mentioned you're still doing consulting work, of course, but alongside that, and I think many people know you for this, Rosemary, you've, um, well, you've recently released the fifth edition of your data protection law and practice book. So it was published towards the end of last year by Sweet and Maxwell. Um, in fact, I saw quite a bit of LinkedIn activity around the time it came out from, not from yourself, because I know you're much more modest than that, but people sharing it and saying, oh, look, I've got an early Christmas present and all this sort of stuff. So I, I've got to ask you whilst we're on, on the topic, and I know you, you, you are sort of, you don't want to rattle on or talk about your book too much, but I've got to ask you, so this is the fifth edition. When was the first edition released and how do you go about producing such a comprehensive piece of work? The first edition was 1999. Uh, so a friend of mine who, because it's the fifth edition, a friend accuses me of having written the same book for 20 years. <laughs> and so she says, I've known you for 20 years. You've been writing that same book all the time. And I get to the fifth edition, it's changed. Um, I, when I started, actually, because a friend had got, uh, had got this commission to do a shortish book and she wanted me to do some chapters. And I started doing my chapters. I said, that's fine, and, and started doing them. And then she got pulled off in some really big litigation and sort of her chapters got, well, they, they didn't really get done in the end. So in effect, I wrote the bulk of it and then was, then was helped out by a very, very nicely by Angus Hamilton. So the first couple of editions were Jay and Hamilton, although I, I wrote the bulk of it. Uh, and then Angus uh, was doing other things. Um, and I just sort of carried on. It, it, it has changed hugely over the years because the area has changed. But I write it sort of chapter by chapter in the sense that I really try and focus on one specific area and make that as comprehensive as possible. So for example, and some things fall into relatively neat, something like research you can look at and really focus on. Some things conflate into one another and then it's a question of, of going through and going through and checking it's consistent and that, you know, you've used the same terminology and so on and so forth. As the book has grown, I've had help with writing specific chapters. So usually from people who I've worked with over the years. So uh, William Malcolm, uh, who's now at Google, does the transfer chapter and, uh, and Sue Cullen, who I also worked with, does the FOI chapter. And I think it's just a question of putting one foot in front of the other. You just yeah. have to, you just have to accept that it will take a ridiculous amount of time. Mm -hmm. You would make more money stacking shelves, <laughs> and that there is a tremendous pleasure in doing it. When when you finished kind of thing, you look at it and you think, yes, I I, I managed that. Perhaps yeah. people feel like that. I suppose, I also like walking. I quite like long walks, and I did um, the moonwalk a few years ago with my daughter. Uh, uh, daughter-in-law and I did it and you do 26 miles overnight and there's a kind of satisfaction in you know just achieving something like that 
Absolutely. I wondered what you were going to say then. I thought you were going to talk about Michael Jackson and doing the moonwalk and all that sort of stuff. For a minute. No, no, no. It's a charity walk. <laughs> well, a couple of things on that. I mean, firstly, how smart was your colleague slash friend who suddenly had this big piece of litigation to uh, <laughs> to focus on and you wrote the bulk of the book? But maybe again, you know, that was fate. It was just so happened that it led you on a path. And, and 22 years later, the fifth edition has just come out. Is, is there going to be another edition? sixth edition do you think well if there is i don't think i'll be writing much of it <laughs> now you're having too much fun in the garden and the allotment i guess so well i mean and you know i've i know lots of um, lawyers both in-house and in practice actually who who've relied on it and and read it and think a lot of it so i guess on behalf of them thank you thank you for all of your work and efforts you know it's it's a massive piece and and probably a bit of pressure on your shoulders as well when you come to write that sort of thing so uh, you're kind of under the microscope so so thank you on behalf of the community uh, speaking about the community the uh, we've got a uh, well, as the last few years have been, as it's always a big year in privacy and data protection, and this year is is no different. We've just, we've obviously Brexit has has been finalised, um, and there's there's big, you know, there's big movements potentially down the road uh, this year with uh, Elizabeth Denham um, potentially standing down. I, I I understood that she was, and then I think there was some people saying she may not and so it'd be interesting to get your view on that but sort of looking ahead from an outsider these days obviously you're not at the uh, the ICO of course you haven't been for many years but how do you see when Liz Denham leaves things evolving from an ICO perspective and do you think they'll go down a sort of different route with the way they communicate with people or different sort of you know what what do you think a successor will be looking to do the direction of travel? Now I thought that um, that Liz Denham was Staying until later in the year, um, but, but but was but but it, you know but is obviously coming to the end of her term. Well, I think one of the things you have to remember is that the commissioner's office does not just deal with data protection; it deals with FOI. And I think when we look at it from a data protection perspective, we we see it just through that prism that this is privacy data protection work. But actually, the commissioner who who moves into that role has to look at both sides of the work of the office and I think that FOI actually will perhaps be more of a challenge than than we recognize I think we've seen a decrease in transparency from this government I mean if you think just of that um, if you remember the intelligence and security committee report on Russian influence on Brexit it didn't actually see the light of day until June July this last year, 2020. Um, and I think there is pressure on FOI. So the commissioner has to be balanced around those, those two sides of his or her work. In terms of data protection, I can't see that things like the advisory work, the policy work is going to undergo some massive change. It's a big organisation, it, you know, it's on a steady course. And I would imagine that there would have to be quite a lot of thinking before the ship you know before you turn a big ship around and you have to work out you know what your direction needs to be where i think the new commissioner will be able to kind of move in and make a change will be in the international role post brexit because of course the commissioner will no longer be a member of the edp isn't a member of the european data protection board now but equally there is a huge growth internationally in data protection legal instruments some of them are based on gdpr 
but not all are based on GDPR. And data protection has moved from being a, a kind of a European, I don't know, European issue, European focus to actually being a global issue and affecting huge numbers of countries, huge numbers of regulators. There is a kind of European sense that, you know, Europe carries the sacred flame of data protection. But I don't think that that actually should continue to be the case. I think we somehow have to recognise that we live in a bigger world and that, you know, other approaches and other cultures, actually, we need to pay more attention to them. It's not just we don't own data protection in Europe. And I think that the new commissioner will actually have a role there, potentially, to, to help build those bridges, to help generate new thinking, to help establish a, a better global sense of, of data protection and, um, and how it works internationally and not just in the blocks of this is the way APEC does it, this is the way uh, Europe does it to move us towards the, a more consistent global role. So it'd be a fantastic, interesting challenge, I think, that side of it. Absolutely. And any any predictions for who, who you could see potentially coming on board to replace Liz Denham? No, I, I don't have. And I think they have tended to, to look outside the, the data protection community sometimes. So Chris Graham, if you recall, you know, Chris came from a, a, a journalistic background from uh, a different sort of background and that can be very useful it can bring a fresh pair of eyes you know Liz is uh, is Canadian and, and has brought a different perspective from an international view so one never knows until the field is open and but if yeah. there's anyone listening who thinks this could be the job for them at some point it's going to come up in the next 12 months <laughs> absolutely and it'll be interesting to see you know perhaps with the, you know the landscape of technology and and everything i mean it was heading in the same direction anyway but it's only been fast forwarded as we know in the last year since the pandemics uh, began it'll be interesting if they're actually going to go for somebody with a, you know a technology background as well mm-hmm. where tech meets privacy or you know that sort of angle i think if it was me i'd be thinking along those lines I think it's crucial to keep things in that, you know, in that direction and have somebody to take a helicopter view of, of you know, all of that landscape. But we shall see. We shall see. Okay. Actually, can I just pick up on that? Because that is a really interesting thought. So the first registrar, Eric Howe, actually came from what was then the National Computing Centre and did bring that element to the party. Liz Franz came from a public sector civil service background. So we have seen, as new commissioners have been appointed, that actually at the time, different skill sets have been pulled in from different areas. Mm. And I think your point that says actually now, maybe looking around, those who are appointing say, we should perhaps look towards tech or we should look towards uh, business might well be might well be a good way of looking at it. Yeah. Absolutely. And and let's face it as well, you know, with the power of the big, you know, tech companies, increasingly governments that we're seeing in Australia at the moment and bodies like the ICO, you know, they're going to have to be tough. They're going to have to be strong. They're going to have to be good at playing poker at times and all this sort of stuff. I mean, it's it's just, I mean, it's, it's I've said before, it's kind of gra- grab the popcorn time, isn't it? Because it's all, you've got Apple and Facebook facing off, excuse the pun there, but, you know, there's all these sort of things going on and they're all filtering in as well, of course, to 
only increase the general public's awareness of privacy. So I think all of these things can only be a big thing, uh, a good thing, sorry. I think we're seeing slowly but surely, particularly in the last 12 months, because of the tools and the communication platforms and the social media that people are using, that they're becoming more and more privacy aware by the day. And therefore, it can only be good for us all because businesses are becoming aware of this and there's all this, all these face-offs in the, in the press. So I was going to ask you, Rosemary, about the adequacy decision and what your sense or views were on how things are going to perhaps pan out this year with that. But actually, as we speak, as we record this podcast, there has been a bit of an update in the last 24, 48 hours, and it is looking like a decision, a draft decision is imminent. So, you know, what are your views on the adequacy piece? Yeah, I'm assuming that everyone listening will will know what we mean by adequacy, but should I just say that would be a decision by the European Commission, not by individual countries, but by the Commission for the whole of Europe, that data can flow freely from Europe into the UK. So it's a, a Brexit issue, a bit like the border control issues. And to do that, they can make a decision that says, yes, the law in the UK uh, is is adequate, is, is equivalent to European. Well, technically, I think it should be regarded as such. We have implemented GDPR as ever the UK has implemented it, you know, rigorously. I don't think we've gold-plated it by any stretch of the imagination, but we are very conscientious about uh, our work on it. And the issue has been being considered by, by Europe. So the way that it works is the Commission issues a draft decision that says yay or nay, it's adequate, uh, either for business or for law enforcement or for both. And then the European Data Protection Board gives a formal opinion on it. So that is a board composed of all the regulators in Europe. What's happened, what we've heard on the, um, I think we got a Politico update, I think it was in the FT you were, no- you were noting, that the draft decision is coming out of the Commission uh, this week, possibly today, And that will then go to the European Data Protection Board, who will give a formal opinion. And then the European Commission will take account of that opinion in reaching a final decision as to whether or not to grant adequacy. And we just have to wait now and see what the board, what the views of the board are. I would imagine there'll be some reservations among some members of the board. There is a kind of, there's a, there's a kind of folklore sense in some European jurisdictions that 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 the UK and and Ireland as well don't sort of do data protection properly. I mean, it it is completely without foundation. The UK has the biggest regulator, an incredibly active regulator. Ireland is a very conscientious uh, regulator as well, but it has been a persistent sort of myth. I mean, I can remember this and very quickly, years and years ago, I was actually still at the registrar's office a colleague and I went to Germany to visit several of the Lambda, the data protection authorities, because we were interested in how they enforced their regulations, how they enforced data protection uh, over there. And we, we went to one, I, well, I won't say which one it was, and we, we went in a meeting. We were treated to, at the beginning, a kind of half-hour diatribe, I can only call it that, about how much better German data protection was than the UK, the way the UK did it. Now, it might just have been that individual, but uh, we then said, well, that's all very interesting. We're interested in how you enforce. And we got out our 
charts and tables of the enforcement action and prosecutions. And a sort of silence fell. And we said, and, you know, how do you enforce? And, and really, they hadn't actually really done much enforcement. Now, accepting it was early days, and that was a small authority, and perhaps being a bit unfair. But there is that kind of sense. So it is possible, I think, that, you know, there will be some some negative response from the EDPB, but equally, it's a big group, and hopefully that will balance out and we'll get a, a helpful opinion. Yeah, because we've got till June, is that that's correct? That was the sort of agreement. Yeah. So so they, they're, they're making good time at the moment, aren't they? We're, we're for February, so good. And it can only be good news, of course, for, well, for all of us, really, but, you know, certainly UK business and the, you know, sort of security or law enforcement bodies in the UK. So as we know, and we've discussed this before, and because I love hearing about your your journey, Rosemary, and it's it's fascinating talking to you. And uh, there's only a handful of you, I kind of call you the originals, really, there's, um, you know, I won't name them, but there's a few people that have been around for the period of time you have, and have really been on this incredible journey. Now, obviously, over the last few years, we've we've seen that actually within privacy, there's lots of new developing areas for perhaps lawyers or even or non-lawyers as well to, to specialize in um you know it's a real multifunctional area now which is really exciting increasingly you're seeing particularly in larger businesses teams with a real spread of different specialists i just wanted to sort of get your thoughts on if you're talking now and i'm sure there'll be many of them listening sort of trainee lawyers junior privacy pros the like you know they're looking at the moment thinking there's ai the ethics piece product counseling you know lots of different stuff to to focus on is there a specific area you would be advising those individuals at the moment to really sort of focus their efforts on or would you would be you'd be advising them to keep it broader i would advise to keep it broader once you are starting off Unless you unless you you already know that what you want is the big money or the glittering prizes and you're gonna go for a you know magic circle law firm and you want to make partner within certain if you if you kind of know that, then I think you probably need to just sit down and make the list and go for it. But lots of people when they're starting out don't have that sense. They're looking for something that's interesting something that, that they're good at, something that fits with their lifestyle. So I think you need to be open-minded, actually, in your early years. I mean, I took my first job in data protection because I could get to the supermarket at lunchtime. <laughs> you, know, you know, people are not always motivated by the glittering prizes kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and what suits one person doesn't suit another. So the person who makes a good litigator might actually not be comfortable sitting doing contracts all day. The person mm -hmm. who is happy drafting might not be happy with litigation. I like advising kind of at the cutting edge of stuff because I like that thinking something through from first principles and trying to work out how the rules apply to something new. But not everyone is comfortable with that. You know, a lot of people like like to sit in a more, you know, a place that they feel more solid. So I'd suggest going for a, a wide range of experience and aiming to go to a firm where you can develop different skills and you can get a sense of where your particular interests lie and what what is going to fit best with you. And I think there are all those realistic things about, you know, do you want to work till eight o'clock every night or do you want to be able to go home? And it's a trade-off. I, th I think it's a, very often a trade-off about what suits you. 
So I would keep an open mind. I think the most important thing is is work hard and work properly. When mm. you are going to do it, do it properly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you, you're obviously a case in point to anyone that you, I'm sure, had absolutely no idea when you joined the ICO uh, in its previous uh, name and form that you would have done what you've done over the last, you know, sort of couple of decades you know I'm sure you've, you've gone with it no doubt you all those attributes you've mentioned working hard and um, learning all the time all that sort of stuff will stand people obviously in good stead and I think you know in my line of work of course you know as a headhunter I it's quite rare that you'll you'll speak to you know a junior individual and they're absolutely crystal clear about where they want to go uh, quite often if you do speak to those people you think you do think wow you know you've got a big future you're so clear you've you've you know you, you've obviously been clear in your mind from probably a teenager and uh, you know those individuals are gonna have a you know a super impressive career but as you said quite often they trade off facets of their personal life their private life and all that sort of stuff so it's it's all it's all horses for courses isn't it at the end of the day so final question uh for you rosemary in your glittering career in privacy uh what would you say is <laughs> for anyone who can't see rosemary now she's kind of rolling her eyes at me because i'm embarrassing her now but um what would you say has been the most enjoyable satisfying exciting piece of work perhaps that you've been involved in you can pick any of those terms i guess the one that i actually enjoyed most is probably not the most significant but when i was at pinson's and I wasn't a partner for 20 years, I should say. I was only a partner for a few years, really. But one of the things that we did was we worked with a company called Video Arts and we produced uh, an e-learning programme. It was actually FOI, but it was a series of little scenarios that the actors did. And then there were learning questions and then there was a resource with that, with guidance, and it linked to the legislation. So we sort of designed it. But one of the things that, that I did was to help write these little scenarios. And I, I mean, I love writing. I don't think you would ever, you know, write a textbook like that if you didn't actually enjoy, you know, putting it together and explaining things and working them out. But I, I also like writing little stories kind of thing. And, and it was incredibly enjoyable. It was very different from anything else I'd ever done. I suppose we were working with a different group of people and it was separate from kind of legal advice. So if you said, what did I actually enjoy? Actually, I really enjoyed that. I mean, some of the most satisfying work has been uh, advising on particular issues or some litigation when I was at the, the, the registrar's office, but I'll choose the enjoyable. That was yeah. Fantastic. And it just goes to show, doesn't it, you know, the, the, the breadth of stuff you've worked on and no doubt much of it, you know, particularly, well, it, I was going to say particularly, but certainly in the last few years with the tech explosion, you know, it's been cutting edge stuff. And outside of all of that, you've chosen something that, and remember something from your career that actually gave you the most enjoyment. So I think that's, uh, that's a, a message or a lesson to anyone listening. You've got to enjoy your work. So, Rosemary, it's been, been fascinating and a privilege to have you on the podcast. Um, I do hope our listeners have enjoyed it and will take stuff away with them. If you haven't already, do have a look for Rosemary's book. I'm sure she'd be appreciative of uh, you having a read. But anyway, thank you all. And Rosemary, it, uh, thank you so much again for your time. And of course, we will speak very soon. Take care for now. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Bye now. Thank you.